But my favorite is the street design. And I, I came to that because you remember the, the Eureka moment in Old Town Alexandria's walkable streets. I think it's the one thing that we can least afford to get wrong. Um, it has huge implications, not just for the neighborhood or for the individual architectural site, um, but for the region. And it's at the same time, it's the ones of those scales you mentioned, it's the one that is most often gotten wrong. Welcome to Human City. I'm Stig. Our guest today is Victor Dover, FAICP Lead AP, CNU accredited. He is a founding principal of Dover Coal and Partners Town Planning. Mr. Dover was cited by Architecture Magazine as being among, quote, the country's best urban designers and architects, quote. His work is cited in a lot of the planning textbooks. He has done over 200 charrettes, served as a national chair for the Congress for New Urbanism, and then co-authored Street Design, The Secrets to Great Cities and Towns with a previous guest, John Massingale. He's insane. In this episode, we talk about how Victor got into the field of town planning, his video series, which you will hear more about soon, the importance of trees and parks, how to fix your downtowns, retail today, and some ideas on the future of housing. I could have listened to him speak all day. He knows so much, it's unbelievable. Tune in to hear for yourself. Victor, welcome to Human City. Good morning. Thanks for having me. All right. So what was your neighborhood like growing up? Oh, I grew up in Hickory Grove, which is now part of Charlotte, North Carolina. And at the time, it was a, a rural place in transition. It's a, you know, an old crossroads community. And we lived in one of the subdivisions added to it in the 1960s. And then gradually over the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, uh, what we once knew as Hickory Grove, an unincorporated rural area near Charlotte, was subsumed by Charlotte itself and kind of submerged in the asphalt coating of Charlotte's highways and shopping centers and um, apartment complexes and so on. But at the time when I lived there, we you know we lived in a relatively new house on the edge, but the crossroads community was um, an old rural place, you know, uh, a stop sign, no no traffic signal. <laughs> and, uh, wow. <laughs> there was a there's general stories to you know we walk our ride our bikes to that and uh, you know yeah. elementary school um the church i one of my vivid memories is that my fourth grade elementary school teacher was in the same sunday school class with my mother you know the church and the school no being across the street from one another which had an amazing uh, impact on behavior in the classroom you might imagine <laughs> yeah and uh, so it was that kind of place have you ever seen the old rob reiner movie uh, stand by me it looked like that that's what oh, really? that's, that's the okay. kind of place it was <laughs> and we were free-range kids you know rode our bikes uh you know and walked around everywhere barefoot all summer that kind of that kind of thing but it was uh, it was interesting we we as kids even though we lived in a new house in the suburban part uh, you know the emerging suburbia um we could go to things. We could ride our bike to the corner store, or, you know, um, I, I ride my bike to where my mother's office was, you know, to sort of check on her in the afternoon, see what she was doing, bother her. 
Um, and you know, that's, so it was, it was big, it was motorized in the way that we think of as suburbia, but not so much. Um, and not so much as now. Interesting. And so what led you into urban design, architecture, planning? Uh, was that later or like, I don't know. I think it was almost inevitable. I, now I, I look, look back on that and I think, well, I know exactly how that happened. Um, in that close neighborhood, I was the neighborhood paper boy and I was really good at it. You know, your paper was there and it was on dry and it was dry and I got one, I got to you every afternoon, no matter what. Um, and in afternoon route back when we used to have two papers a day in the major metropolitan areas. Yeah. And so I delivered newspapers every afternoon and, um, in a competition with all the other newspaper carriers, uh, I, I won a trip, um, I to represent the Charlotte observer and the Charlotte news. Um, I, uh, a young lady and I were picked to, um, go on a trip to England and Ireland, uh, with, 50 or 60 other kids from around the country and newspapers that carried parade magazine, you know, that Sunday supplement. And we, they took us on a trip to see places, you know, a kid like me from Hickory Grove, North Carolina would just probably not even see and that you know, like London and Brighton and Dublin and what have you. And yes. it made a powerful impression on me, you know, seeing these cathedrals and these ancient cities and these old ruins and uh, that kind of thing. And I, I came back just obsessed with architecture and, and eventually wow. that led to um, 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 maybe a deeper obsession with cities and neighborhoods. Yeah. yeah it's interesting. how such like a critical juncture like that. <laughs> it was. So that. I was there I was in you know 10th grade. And so, <laughs> I mean, that was architecture school is where I was going. And I went wow. to Virginia tech um, and uh, in the latter part of my uh, study at Virginia tech, I was in the Alexandria center that they operate in Old Town, Alexandria, Virginia. So I lived in Old Town. And I think of all the experiences I've had, the most powerful formative experience was living in Old Town, Alexandria, because that's a walkable neighborhood, you know, laid yeah. out by surveyor George Washington yeah. in his surveyor career. So it was that age. And uh, you walk everywhere. Buildings were close together or attached to one another, and yet it felt human scale. And it was, it was agreeable as a place, lots of trees historic buildings. And, you know, I just didn't have any of that growing up, uh, you know, in the burbs, I had a, a very different yeah. kind of experience. I, I remember calling my father up once and saying, you know, dad, I can walk in one block in any direction and buy a copy of the New York times. And that was really something in the <laughs> 1980s when, <laughs> when you didn't have the New York times on your phone or your tablet. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and uh, they have streets you can walk on here. It's the most amazing thing. You uh, and he, he chuckled because he traveled a lot and he'd seen and done and been to many more places. And um, but I think that really slid it into focus for me that you could mm. you can actually have a kind of growth, including this growth laid out by George Washington, yeah. that made things better rather than worse. And so as you work on city planning, that's the fundamental problem. You know that that you're accommodating growth and change in a way that makes things better. Actually adds to what the community was before the change. And, you know, in the community where I grew up, the opposite occurred, you know, with all the asphalt and uh, yeah. Hickory Grove sort of sunk under that coating of asphalt uh, from uh, 1980s suburbia. And, but that's not what I saw in Old Town Alexandria or in Georgetown or in Annapolis yeah. or in the historic places I began to really appreciate at that time. Yeah. I mean, easier said than done, but I think everyone should have that chance to live in a walkable neighborhood like that because it's, I don't know, it, people don't, won't really understand it until you're there, you know? 
I, I think it's like, yeah, critically important. It sounds like it really helped for you. So it, like, it did. And I think it's why travel is not a luxury for designers, architects, urban designers, landscape mm-hmm. architects, engineers. Sure. I think travel is a necessity. You have to go places yep. because what you're doing is you're just building an inventory in your brain of all of these different ways yeah. a human settlement can be solved and, uh, and the pieces can go together. So you don't have to really just think only about buildings or think only about the land use plan or only about transportation or historic preservation. You can actually do all those things at one time. Uh, when you you build up that vocabulary from travel and from looking at precedents. Totally. Yeah. It's just critical. Um, so I, you sort of touched on this before, but, um, in your, you have a really cool video series. I want to, that everyone should go check out. It's called town planning stuff. Everyone needs to know. Uh, I, can you just talk about maybe the first episode? So like, why is planning (laughs) important? You know? Yeah, there's actually an episode zero, which explains the series, but then, uh, which we called the pilot because we didn't know how to work the cameras or do that. <laughs> we were figuring that out. Test run. Episode one <laughs> is about why planning matters. You know, the fact that every place we really love is the result of somebody drawing lines on a map and deciding it should be this way, not that way. And those decisions actually add up over time and they last for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so uh, episode one is really, really short. It's really targeted at, citizens who might be getting burned out on zoning hearings or, you know, the controversies around land use and all those things. And to give them a little encouragement and say, you know, the time you're spending as a volunteer uh, sticking, sticking up for good urbanism uh, is not wasted. It will make a difference. Um, you know, if you, if you do it like you mean it. And uh, so that's what really the first episode was. And that was like a trial prototype in a way. And, and we get, ended up after recording it, giving it the title uh, town planning stuff. Everyone needs to know because by everyone, we mean your mayor, <laughs> you know, the yeah. elected official, uh, <laughs> specifically newly elected elected officials. And yeah. I say it that way because these are time stressed individuals who probably got into that seat. Um, they may get a tiny little salary for sitting there. They probably got into that seat because they were involved in their community, but not necessarily because they know about city planning. Yeah. or traffic engineering or um, these kinds of things. And so um, they have very little time. They're very distracted. So I thought, well, what we really need to do is give those folks um, some a little bit of information and some encouragement they can use, tell them where to go find them out more so they can become the experts they need to be to, to make these big decisions yeah. that that just last for so long. Um, it's very It's very difficult to reverse big uh, city planning decisions once they're made. And so um, I think there's a lot of pressure on those individuals. Now, sometimes people land in there because they were already deeply involved in land use law or something. That's rare. Most people just love their community. They probably got, they're probably upset about something they saw change, you know, when the horse farm became a subdivision or when the, the, um, you know, the forest that they love became a used car lot or whatever. And they, that's usually how they get propelled to, might find themselves at the front of their school board or the front of their homeowners association. And then mm-hmm. one day they're mayor and now all of a sudden <laughs> they have to make these decisions. So uh, really everyone does mean, uh, those mean those, uh, time stressed. Yeah. It's such an effective way to, um, get your point in your, um, sort of 
good design across you know i really think like so you talk about visualization neighborhoods downtowns yeah i'm just de- uh, designing in public walkable street design all these are critical to designing good cities and <laughs> it's just lays out very cleanly so anyone that's listening i'm glad you found it useful yeah I, they're yeah. very short you know the reason for the for really sure. short episodes uh, some are longer than others but they're very short is because i figured you need to be able to watch it and listen to it in the time it takes you to stand in line while you're uh, waiting to swipe your boarding pass <laughs> just <laughs> yeah. at, at the airport gate or totally. something like that. Um, so, you know, we try not to make it like um, getting a master's degree in this stuff. It's more yeah. like there's some fundamental things and where to go get more information. So I think sure. the most important episodes are about street oriented architecture yeah. uh, and about parks mm-hmm. uh, because those are, those are a little longer, but uh, walkable street design is a big one in there. The episodes get a little more complex as, as we go along from the first fundamental foundation episodes about uh why design matters so much and yeah. uh, why design in public is a is a better way to go yeah. the I, I will say um they've gotten better also because of uh, the other people who are collaborating with me on the series uh, pablo duane has helped conceive it kenneth garcia produced a lot of things cool. my daughter uh Teresa lee is a graphic designer she edits the episodes um together yes. and and does you know cool motion graphics animations to explain the ideas yeah. my son thomas is a jazz musician so he recorded the music so it's uh, a little <laughs> bit of a team effort so cool so cool yeah yeah, I mean, you should hear like my first couple episodes. There's so <laughs> the, a lot of the quality has definitely gotten better, you know, as you do it. So. Well, with videos or with podcasting or with urban design, you really have to start before you're ready. You know, you yeah. just have to just pull out the pen and draw that line on the map and say, yeah. well, what if Main Street went like this? And then stand back and look at it and be willing to change it. You know, yeah. Say, well, yeah, it's, it's just so it's- hard to go from a blank sheet of paper to the first draft it's so much easier to go from the first draft to the second draft so yeah. i just push everybody go jump off the cliff start before you're ready yeah. draw it wrong um and not and because you're going to get a chance to fix it but you Definitely. won't have a chance to really kick the tires on an urban design or or a, a video story unless you start yeah yeah it's so true i mean it's, it's always easier to work on something that exists and is there like the starting is always the hardest so that's lowering right. the bar to entry and making it just like you could do whatever it could be <laughs> horrible you know and that's the your way in that's perfectly fine i love that it's so cool well uh, i really enjoyed your series as well i'm a i'm a human city fan thank you really appreciate it yeah I, I try it's uh it's it's fun it's really really fun for me and just share everyone's work it's really great um yeah i love it so i wonder what level is your favorite and why so street neighborhood town or city you're sort of you'd go in and out of all these components and i wonder um yeah what's your favorite yeah wow that's, that's a tough question it's like asking which of your children is your favorite i <laughs> i think they're all important I actually um yeah. the i will get to your i will give you an answer but i want to i want to say first you don't have to answer um, it perfectly the, that's i just want to see what you think <laughs> the <laughs> really. cool thing about practice is that we actually get a chance to zoom in and out from thinking about the region or you know, the metropolitan area down to the neighborhood or down to the individual block or street or building and then back up again. And we work about half the time for local governments and community groups and about half the time for private developers or investors, not, not in the same place at the same time. And I would just, I think that it's instructive. So, you know, when you're designing a, a neighborhood, you're thinking about the regional structure, the form, how it fits into its larger context. And when you're thinking, you're designing an individual street, you're thinking about how it goes into that neighborhood. So there's a nesting of these scales. 
And it's really helpful to be able to practice at the multiple scales so that when you're doing one, you can think of the others. Uh, remember the old phrase about um, uh, think global, act local. That's just a great bumper sticker, isn't it? And, and that's been with us for a long time. I think in urban design and in urbanism now, the, the important thing is to uh, you know, think and, and plan regionally, but design at the neighborhood scale and locally. Now, my favorite is the street design. And I, I came to that because, you remember the, the Eureka moment in Old Town Alexandria's walkable streets. I think it's the one thing that we can least afford to get wrong. Um, it has huge implications, not just for the neighborhood or for the individual architectural site, um, but for the region. And it's at the same time, it's the ones of those scales you mentioned, it's the one that is most often gotten wrong. Okay. Um, so street design, when you use the term, I'm thinking about the whole ensemble, not just like what's in the, between the curbs or where the street trees and lampposts go and that kind of stuff. I'm thinking about uh, the whole build industry relationship you know, that is established by not just the, the designer of the road or the street, but by the architects and builders who are and private investors who are doing the buildings that shape it or the park that faces it. That's the subject of a, a big local debate about uh, whether to buy it, whether to fund it, whether to build it. So really there's a lot of people collaborating on a street scene over dozens or hundreds of years. They may never meet one another and yet they're all teammates on this business of making the street a place where people want to be. So again, you get it wrong. I'd like to say, for example, over-engineering the street for higher speeds, thinking you're helping, right? Your engineers are out there trying to smooth out the street to make it faster for traffic because people want to get where they want to go. And you think you're helping with all that flow. Actually, you're not helping. If you make the street fast and it's unsafe or it feels dangerous and it's all about cars, then you're going to scare away pedestrians, right? So, you know, you would get that if you're thinking bigger than the scale of that individual street. You're thinking this, the design of the street is a repair of this neighborhood. It's a part of this regional strategy for livability. And that building the street relationship, um, an example of that is if you say you could have a blank wall or a garage door facing that sidewalk. Maybe it's set way off the street or maybe it's close. Or you could have doors and windows and storefronts and balconies and porches and these kinds of things as the features on that building yeah. that are closest to the street. Well, it's going to profoundly affect whether or not anyone in your neighborhood is willing to walk down that sidewalk, if there is a sidewalk. Yeah. And um, so if you, if you um, get it wrong, even just one or two times, then the person is going to have a bad experience. They're going to feel like it's dangerous or scary or ugly or boring or unshaded or whatever. If it doesn't have street trees, that sort of thing. They, and they will say, well, next time I'm just going to pull my car keys out of my pocket. I'm going to drive everywhere for everything. So all of a sudden that one little tiny decision about whether this should be a front porch or a garage door has regional implications because if you're more likely to drive instead of walk, well, you're just going to drive farther. You know, you might as well drive for everything. Drive for lunch, drive for an egg McMuffin, drive for to take the kid to piano lessons, drive, drive, drive. So that one little tiny decision on the front of one part of one little tiny building has regional implications. So the reason I'm I'm saying all this is as much as I think the street design scale is the most important one to get right, you just can't do any of them without thinking of the others. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, I think that's part of why you're, you're so good at this is like zooming in and out and understanding how they all connect and how you can think about them when you're designing. That's it's, <laughs> it takes a lot of practice, you know, and skill to get to that level. And so it's easy to get really obsessed with one particular narrow issue, you know, whether it's cycling or, um, affordable housing or, yeah. um, green building or something. And you can, any one little issue, issue you should, yeah. everyone should know something about that. Um, because they need to be able to collaborate with other people who are specialized in that. But you have to be able to have a a more holistic view about how all these pieces go together. And you may um, adjust the requirements from one to satisfy the others in order to get a balance in the result. And if you're only focused on one thing, you probably aren't getting balance. So I'm thinking, for example, if you focus only on how to deliver, um, let's say, elementary school education, at the most efficient possible, lowest possible cost per pupil, right? That's your, yeah. your goal. Yeah. Uh, then all of a sudden your version of economy of scale is to make the school huge, right? Because you only need one principal, you only need one, you know, whatever it is, gymnasium, yeah. Yeah. Uh, to share by a larger number of customers in a way. And that's the, that's the strategy of the big box retailer or the shopping mall applied to the design of an elementary school. The trouble with that is you might end up uh, having less administrative cost or you know, building one big school might be cheaper in terms of land than it is to build two small surgically inserted schools in the neighborhoods, but you're going to cause it be necessary for people to drive really long distances to get that kid to school or the bus to travel really long distances to get that kid to school. And all of a sudden, the thing that you just did to try and make it cheaper is on, on the whole and for society and the whole of government more expensive. And then your test scores go down and you wonder, well, why is this? And so all, everything that you were trying to do uh, when you only worked on that one single issue, mm-hmm. how do I lower the costs of principals and gym teachers, um, end up making other things more expensive and less environmentally smart. And that, so that's where this, this idea that there's a long mm-hmm. list of things that yeah. maybe little basic ideas but they're all town planning stuff. Everyone needs to know. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, it's something similar to that in mathematics. It's called a local minima or a, or a local maximum or and then a global maximum. That's right. And so you could so, sort of accidentally be too zoomed in on your local maximum and not know that you, there's still a bigger, <laughs> bigger Without area somewhere else. Yeah. Plus the cities are messy. So if you only take one little subject, um, how do I make more cars get through this intersection per hour at peak hour, for example, take one little tiny little narrow mission and forget all the rest. You may make a lot of other things worse. And it's because you are over refining a system that is okay for it to be a little bit messy and for there to be, or or for there to be uh, contradictions and complications in it. If you're trying to smooth out the details for the smooth operation of only one thing, you may be you may be paving over something else that's, yeah. that's just as important. And so cities are like these intricate organisms where you can't just make one part of them work well. You have to get a lot of different things to mesh together. And I think the the, the idea that little decisions add up, uh, you know, kind of like the, the death by a thousand cuts torture uh, plays out all around us in the built environment. You know, yeah. Someone will make a short-term, politically easier decision uh, rather than, uh, face up to change yeah yeah i like that um sort of the messiness component to it like understanding that's not you can't make everything too perfect uh okay so 
how do we have tender loving care for our downtowns? <laughs> okay. Well, there's a lot of ways. Um, uh, how many do you want? I can make a long list, but I, <laughs> well, first the downtown, uh, you're on your main street and the close in neighborhoods or around your crossroads or the main street in the heart of your town. Um, these are places that are inevitably experienced on foot. So you want to, you want to optimize them for pedestrians. You have to make them places where once you, even if you arrived by car, if you arrive by car, you can easily move around in them. And if you arrive by transit, you want to emerge from the, from the transit system, whether it's at the top of the escalator on a subway stop or at a bus stop, you want to emerge from transit into the heart of community life, where now you've just gotten off that motorized platform of whatever kind, but now you're a pedestrian again. So we have to make them places where people feel comfortable walking, happy walking, not just safe or minimally accommodated, but actually delighted by the walk. That's the most important thing to get right. Yeah. Because you know the, the uses inside buildings can come and go and swell and shrink. We don't have very many livery stables, for example, in our modern downtowns. We used to have them. No problem. You know, downtown withstood that change very easily. Yeah. Change over time in the built and land uses is a lot easier to accommodate uh, than, mm. uh, than decline of the walkability or the quality of the public realm between buildings. Mm. So, you know, that extends beyond streets to things like uh, uh, public spaces, parks, squares, plazas. They need um, nurturing in the center of your town so that they're part of the ensemble of experiences you're offering people when, they, when they're when they there. And, and so that's another way to, to give nice. tender loving care. I think historic preservation, you know, often picked on because, uh, you know, build a little less here by, as a result of keeping that wonderful historic structure means uh, that to accommodate the same growth or population change or whatever, you have to spread out a little better. You have to fill in something else. But there's so much lost space in our downtowns. I don't, rare is the occasion when it's necessary to remove a historic building to build something bigger. Uh, and very, very commonly, there's plenty of lost space. You may not realize it yet because say, for example, you're imposing high parking requirements that were designed for suburbia mm -hmm. on your downtown. Yeah. And now you think, well, we, we need big parking lots, don't we? Well, well, actually, you don't need the same big parking lots that they needed in the 1970s shopping mall. Yeah. <laughs> so in, in, so that's a, an example where the tender loving care comes about through uh, proper regulation. Yeah. So it's, I've named streets, historic preservation, walkability, parks. Um, how about keeping them places where you can do more than one thing? Yeah. Again, it, even if you drove there, if you could park once and and get a meal and go to the post office and see a friend or uh, if there are places where people are living and working or selling one another things then uh and meals and all that if you can do more than one thing then you're getting so much more uh, versatility and efficiency out of the land that's that patch of land that is in the downtown yeah. i mean that's what downtowns need in order to, to thrive yeah. uh, park once environment uh, traffic engineer famously called it and of course we immediately pounced on him and said well no what about the people who just live there and walked to the main street or the corner store what about the people who arrive by transit it's not just about parking but the truth is we we need the downtown to feel uh and benefit from the support of all those populations yeah wow <laughs> that was a great answer wow thank you uh okay so i only have a i think one or two more questions. I feel like I could talk. I could ask questions for hours, but I don't want to take, take up. <laughs> this your, is fun. <laughs> yeah. Hit me. So, uh, 
you said you said that like 50% of planning is trees and trees are mission critical equipment. How are, can trees make cities better first off? And then also as like a sideline to that parks, how can parks be, okay. be good for cities? Sure. Well, it's, it's a quote from a famous book called trees in urban design by Henry Arnold. And Arnold was the one who said 50% of urban design is street trees. Yeah. And I, and the more I look around, the more I think he's probably right. The, that doesn't mean you, you have trees on every single street, in every single city, in every single context. I mean, there are places where, say, in the arid uh, uh, climate or one in which it's more important to get springtime sunshine in because you're in the frozen north. There, there are places where uh, street trees are not that, that important. There are exceptions to this rule. And if you look at the great photographs of 19th century main streets, they often did not have street trees. They had really big, deep, generous awnings, you know, fabric, soft, retractable, usually that extended way out over the sidewalk, not these what? dinky little flat uh, perfunctory <laughs> awnings that developers put on architecture now, but big, generous awnings. And so they were getting the thing from the architecture that, that we that uh or one of the things that we look for in street trees but the, okay so they do a bunch of things in fact there's a chapter in our book on street design that john massengill and i called the seven roles of the urban street tree um, they are there partly to give order to the space you know that um, they are a thing that's within the street so they're vertical and in your in your field of vision they're up up where you can see them um, but they're organized to set the geometry of the place. And now the buildings might vary, be different heights. And sometimes some, some of them are old and some of them were set back for whatever reason, set forward. So you rarely get total discipline and, and room shaping of the public room in the street from buildings, although sometimes you do. But the street trees is one thing that you can plant in, in rows and in uh, regular spacing that... Uh, set up the geometry of that place. They organize your vista when you look down the street. And so this is a design thing, but I think it's, and you're thinking about the city now compositionally, not biologically or economically, but you have to do that. That's one of the things the street trees do. They do a lot of other things like shade the sidewalk. So you're willing to walk down it even uh, in the warmer times of the year. Uh, you know, when you get into temperate climates and you have deciduous trees that lose their leaves, kind of amazing. And the you think it sounds so simple in the summer, they let dappled light in on the sidewalk. So it's comfortable walking uh, by those stoops or front porches, which let's say on Elm street, USA. And then in the winter, they lose their leaves and the sun is at a lower angle. And now the sun can come in and, and melt the ice on the sidewalks or warm the interior of the yeah. buildings, the same buildings that the, the, the tree in full, uh, uh, leaf in the summer was giving a lower air conditioning cost. It's now mm. giving a lower cooling cost in the winter. So wow. uh, what a great symbiosis between the trees generally planted by developers and government in the public realm and life inside the private property. Um, there's a yeah. great relationship there. And that's, you know, there's, the list is very long. I will add one more. They make oxygen. They soak up carbon dioxide which I'm spewing a lot of right now. Yeah. And then they, they turn it into oxygen. We breathe that stuff. It's a good thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely helpful there. Okay. So I wonder what should I have asked you? Well, I, uh, 
I often get asked, what's next? What's the next frontier? You know, where are we, where, where do we go now in urbanism? We've, we've lived through a, a generation of rediscovery about the patterns of traditional human settlements and why they worked and why they were so good to recycle over time as time changed. Uh, but what will come now in the new, in the new century? And I, I have a few answers for that, but what, the, the simplest one is, I think we now can feel we thoroughly have enough information and we have permission. We have a society that wants um, the car optional community. We should be, or car light lifestyles. We should be able to now generate and regenerate settlements that make us a lot less dependent. doesn't mean we won't have cars because we probably will, especially in the rapidly built sunbelt cities of the, that were, you know, bulked up in the 20th century that were, yeah built up around the car we're gonna have cars but we don't have to make ourselves quite so dependent on them for absolutely everything you know instead we can have some choices and i think the new urbanism for 30 years has been leading people to that understanding uh once you're in a great place you know you might not be so anxious to leave and uh if things are within walking distance you might and the streets are designed to where it's a it's a delightful experience you might actually go accomplish those errands uh, on a bike or walking instead of driving or even if you need to go across the metropolis use transit so there's i think there's an appetite now for the car optional community and meanwhile where do we do this well uh, we are living through uh, the, the greatest retail real estate meltdown in the history of humankind why well probably because it was so grossly overbuilt retail space um, was replicated and replicated again until we have so many acres per human of uh, suburban strip corridor retail space, for example, yeah. uh, that it shouldn't come as any surprise that now in 2021, a bunch of it is vacant. It was declining massively and emptying out prior to the pandemic. And then yep. COVID-19 provided a terrible blow to an already struggling system of uh, strip commercial corridors and shopping malls and so on. So I think a lot of those acres need to be reclaimed, re, uh, given new economic purpose. Uh, that's occurring when we, ne- we were going to need less retail space. We didn't, never needed as much as we had, but we're now we're also doing a lot more online shopping. We're uh, finding ways to sleeve storefront businesses like retail and restaurants in and among other uses like workplaces and housing. So what do we do with that land? Well, at the same exact time, when we have a shortage of affordable places to live, we have a growing population that needs housing. Uh, we need new formats for workplaces that are close to and integrated with places where people live instead of just long commutes to the central business district that the man in the gray flannel suit did in the 1950s or yeah. 60s. So I think the suburban retrofit of those strip corridors and shopping center sites uh, is really the most important next frontier for urbanism because our downtowns are revitalizing. You know, fully half of them are, are already dramatically revitalizing and filling back in. The lights are turning back on on the vacant main streets. The other half are getting there and will get there with more pressure if they're, if they're in a place where it's meant to be. Yeah. But we, we, so we really need to keep our attention on that, but also think about how to uh, lower the pressures on transportation, housing, on environment by peeling back some of this asphalt in these uh, shopping centers everywhere yeah. and making them into mixed use places human habitats yeah 
Totally. Yeah. Um, I like that. I could see that being a thing. I saw Bill Gates even speculate that <laughs> people really? were going to, yeah, people were going to move to uh, like uh, suburban neighborhoods, you know, that. And so there's a huge, uh, like. There's, some, there's something really important to understand about that. Um, the appetite for single family detached houses on large lots might have briefly gone up in response to COVID-19. I think that will rapidly correct again with vaccinations. So we're still steaming toward a time, say the middle of this decade and a little bit after, when we'll have a big surplus of single family detached houses. The houses where Ozzie and Harriet and Leave it to Beaver and the Partridge family and the Brady Bunch lived, um, we'll have a huge surplus of those. So adding just adding more of those right now is, uh, you have to be really careful, I think, as an investor to make sure you're doing it in the right amount at the right time in the right place. Uh, generally speaking, what we need is all these other forms of housing because our households, <clears throat> the new households that are being generated include all these aging empty nesters and young people entering the workforce. Uh, some of whom are not interested at all in living in the Brady Bunch's house. So I, I believe that um, we don't need to keep uh, up the pace of production of single family detached house suburbia, even with a little bit of extra attention to that post pandemic uh, that we, that we were trying to accomplish in the 1950s, 60s and 70s. Uh, on the other hand, I also don't think it's necessary to, for the urbanists and the, and, and the do-gooders to go charge into every little cul-de-sac and try to tell people, you know, not to have that, single family detached yeah. house anymore uh, that predominates in suburbia. So if you if you buy what I just said, which is that we probably don't need to feel that much urgency to change the single family subdivisions that we already have, uh, just to keep them up, uh, people are very protective of them anyway. What's the part of their suburban community that they love the least, that they might be the most interested in seeing uh, improved through growth and change? I think that's the dead strip shopping center and the dying shopping mall and the ugly strip corridor, um, you know, because they, they may be really proud of their house and their, and their uh, subdivision or neighborhood, but then they have to drive past this dreary uh, hellscape, you know, to uh, go in and out of their community or yeah. welcome their visitors. They have to go down that street and they say, well, don't look at this. This is, this is not what we meant by happy land acres. Wait till we get there. Um, <laughs> You know, put the poor realtors, you know, trying to take prospects to see a new house or, or apartment, uh, feel like they need to blindfold the prospects totally. because they have to drive down the strip corridor through the interchange and buy the big boxes and the, all the asphalt just to get to the part that's sexy and exciting about the house. Yeah. Um, and so that tells me that the right place to do the transformation, the retrofit, and at least the right place to focus is on the, the commercial corridor. Yeah. Wow. That's, it's a huge opportunity. I definitely think people that are the cities that are, or that, that happens to them, it's going to add a lot of value, a lot. Well, yeah, a value. couple hundred years supply of land. To do yeah. Yeah. hundred well. percent. Yeah, <clears throat> cool. Victor, this has been super fun. Unbelievable. Like really, fun really great. You. Th thank you for coming. Um, how here. can people see your work or get in contact well, uh, DoverCole.com, that's D-O-V-E-R-K-O-H-L.com, is our website. You can look at examples of the kind of projects that I described and uh, the range of scales that you asked about. 
And then there, our Biblical YouTube channel has uh, a lot of those short videos on town planning stuff everyone needs to know and other interesting things. Probe around on there and, and send us a note, leave a comment or, or, uh, or ask a question or, um, or give it a like or subscribe or send me a message that says, you've got it totally wrong, Victor. You need to improve your story. Um, <laughs> and here's why. I want to hear those things. So those, so both of those are good places to go. The Dovercold YouTube channel is where to find town planning stuff everyone needs to know. Perfect. Yeah, and I'll link to everything in the show notes. Thank you so much, Victor. This has been Thanks a Thanks for having me. Hey, guys. That is all. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions, just send to humancitypodcast at gmail.com. Or you could hit me up at Twitter at humancitypod. Or even Instagram at human.city. I love listening. I love hearing it. Please, guys, absolutely anything. I'd love to talk. And that is it. I'm Stig. Goodbye, goodbye.